In the early days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> well, hello and welcome to episode 100 of the Actual Anarchy Podcast. They said it couldn't be done, and here we are, done doing it. My co-host is Robert. He's here. We're excited. This is like a celebration. But I don't think they said it couldn't be done. I think they said it shouldn't be done. I think you misheard that. I might have mis- misheard the beginning part of the uh, the word there, but I, I heard "udent," and I was like, "Oh, they 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 don't think they don't believe in us. We're going to prove them wrong." And here we are, episode one hundred. We're doing the thing, and we're doing the thing, and we're doing the thing. Literally, nineteen eighty two's John Carpenter, The Thing, starring Mister Libertarian, Part Two. Kurt Russell and the uh, show notes and more are at actualanarchy.com slash 100. That's three, three digits, three digits, 100, one, zero, zero. Is that true? Kurt Russell Terrier is a lib, a libtard. Is that true? Uh, he has claimed that mantle, though many people do. And many people are, I don't want to get all purity test on, on y'all, but there's a, a fair number of people who claim the mantle who don't really espouse the principled beliefs that would seemingly require uh you to adhere to to become a libertarian or claim that mantle yeah i take it as very like i'm very skeptical whenever somebody i don't know claims that mantle like what do you mean by that do you mean just socially liberal and fiscally conservative or do you actually mean that's why i like terms like voluntarists or anarcho-capitalists they're very they're much more specific and i know that if you claim those titles you're you're coming from a certain knowledge set with a certain principle in play. Whereas a libertarian, I think you, they, you could be a libertarian and claim to be a libertarian without any knowledge of the NAP. I think that's right. Yeah. And and then you could even claim to be a libertarian socialist, uh, oddly enough, like I'm a elephant duck or, you know, a banana octopus or something like that. But um, I, I also think that, and we'll get into last nighters in a minute here, once we get all this anarchist shit out of the way, uh, that even ANCAP is a bit tainty now with the whole alt-right stuff. Because there's people who were ancappy and now they're a bit anfashy, if you know what I mean. So like, yeah, yeah. What's his name? I'm thinking of a C word, Chris, something or other. Oh, the Cantwell. Camp, Campbell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He did go alt right. Um, I think he still believes in an ancap type 
world. I think he just believes that in order to get to there, you need to have some sort of ethno state before you can get there, or that's the best way towards a free state or a free world. I, I disagree, but yeah, I, I don't think you can really, I think you're, I don't think you're upholding your principles entirely if you are saying that we need to have some sort of a white ethno state before we can have freedom. It doesn't make any sense to me, but okay. Right. And then it's similar to the uh, the border argument, which I'll agree. Like, I'm not totally convinced one way or the other. I, I'm open to arguments. Um, but to me, the provision of additional powers to the state is a non-starter. And that's what would be required to do this whole border thing. Yeah, certainly. I know that it seems like the open border libertarian, the principal, you know, Larkin Rose, Jean Jacketarian position is becoming less and less popular. And but the 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 opposite side of that is government aggression. Now, you're saying that, well, I'm aggressing against people on the very good likelihood that these immigrants are going to then aggress against me. But that's the Bush doctrine. Yeah, the that's, preemptive strike. Yeah, yeah it's the preemptive strike. And, and then once you do that, you are opening yourself up to all kinds of other ridiculous arguments like, well, we can't have and I'm, I'm with you on this, but we can't have like, you know, socialized medicine because or anybody that dips into socialized medicine is then aggr aggressing against you. Like if somebody is like eating a hamburger, well, then you're more likely to need doctor's care. So therefore they're drawing from the system. You know, you get you get to the point where anytime anybody's doing anything that would take from the public money funds like the immigrants would or they're saying the immigrants would, then they are somehow aggressing against you. It's uh. I don't know. It's, it gets all messy really fast. And it, uh, anyway, I wasn't prepared to talk about this. I don't know how we got on this topic, but now we're talking about it and I'm making a fool of myself talking. No, <laughs> that's okay. That's what we do here. And we've done it a hundred times now. Made a fool of ourselves already in this one. So now it is officially 100. This is actualanarchy.com slash 100. We'll get into the last nighters portion of the show after these beeps and boops. Hey everyone, it's Daniel and Robert, The Last Nighters. We have been doing some pre-show that is available for you all at our Patreon, so lastnighters.com slash Patreon. This is episode 43, and we are talking about John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982. And my co-host is Robert. Before we get into the Google description, let's say hello to my frozen ice bucket dude over here. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. We're talking about an old movie again, but this time it's a... Well, I think it's a good one. We'll see what Daniel thinks here in a little bit. Oh, we will see. We will see. Now, uh, just, you know, spoiler alert, everyone. This is one of Robert's favorite movies, or so he claimed a few weeks ago. We'll see if we can change his, his opinion here as we get into the Google description. This is The Thing, John Carpenter, 1982, starring Kurt Russell. It's a fantasy science fiction, one hour, 49 minutes. 8.1 on that IMDb, 83% Rotten Tomatoes, 57 Heinz 57 on that Metacritic, with 91% of the Google users liking it. Here is the description. In remote Antarctica, a group of American research scientists are disturbed at their base camp by a helicopter shooting at a sled dog. When they take in the dog, it brutally attacks both human beings and canines in the camp, and they discover that the beast can assume the shape of its victims. A resourceful helicopter pilot, played by Kurt Russell, and the camp doctor, Richard Dysart, lead the camp crew in a desperate, gory battle against the vicious creature before it picks them all off one by one. Came out June 25th. 
1982, director John Carpenter, and this was his first major uh, studio film. Uh, this was a story from the 1930s, I believe, by John W. Campbell, and the screenplay on this was by Bill Lancaster. If I recall, the budget was roughly 15 million U.S. dollars, and the box office was just shy of 20 million. So it did make a couple of pennies back, but it was lambasted by critics for a number of reasons. But Robert, your opening salvo, your opinion on the Google description and the content I have provided to our audience thus far. Well, I can't speak for the idiotic, you know, critics at the time. I, I will say that you know, horror typically has a very poor reception among critics, especially back in the day. I mean, you weren't going to... You didn't make a movie like Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street to get like Oscar nods. You did it because you had a certain set of fans that liked the, that sort of content. So you, you know, you make a slasher movie to get some scares out of some people and to uh, get some guys laid, you know, on the date night. And you get the girl like curling up to you and you're like, I'm going to protect you. Don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of business. If anybody comes and tries to slash you, I just take care of it. Don't worry about it, baby. That's how that's how it works. So thank you, John Carpenter, for getting like a lot of guys laid. Appreciate it. You're, you're stud. And screw you, critics, for not recognizing. Well, they're all a bunch of sexless, joyless garbage people anyway, so it doesn't matter. All right, I'm going to just stop you right there, Robert Johnson, co-host of a film critic show called The Last Nighters. Um, what does that say about, you know, present company here are you are you saying that back in the 70s and 80s that's how it was but not so today in present day terms 2018 yeah no the world has completely changed now film critics are super stud like all-star rock star guys that are all about crushing puss so you know that's how we do <laughs> all right well we might need to edit bleep that out maybe not uh I, I do have a few questions for you yeah so this movie to me this was the first time I had seen this, and I had heard about it for years and just never gotten around to watching it. But my viewing of it, I kept thinking of The Shining by Kubrick with a couple of things. One was the negative space and the um, almost still shots and framing of empty spaces, like you know the corridors and, and the areas of the, uh, of the building, and then also the perspective of the animal of the dog, like when, when they're doing some sort of the, uh, you know, the establishing shots and things like that. And then even the music, though the music was a bit more intense in a proto-electric kind of synth pop vibe. <laughs> I'm sort of making up word salad here, but, but there was an intent, intended like uh, foreboding in the music that was similar to what I felt in the opening shots of Kubrick's uh, The Shining. And, and also uh, that had the establishing helicopter shot that would go kind of... Um, the shot would go counter to what you expected, and so it, it introduced a lot of tension, even before there was any dialogue whatsoever. And I sort of felt that same way with this movie. And and then, you know, they're shooting at this dog, and you're like, this guy must be like the worst shot ever, right? But then you later discover that the dog is impervious to bullets. Apparently, only fire can kill these things. But uh, uh, I guess I'll wind this back to the first six minutes of this movie, which only has men, by the way. So totally not uh, not able to be made today because you'd have to have, you know, every 75th gender or 1,024, however many there are now, uh, uh, represented. Um, you couldn't make this movie anymore. But the first six minutes, no dialogue. Your thoughts on this stuff? Well, that's interesting. So you're saying that this movie is in good company. I'm glad you think this movie is a masterpiece. Appreciate it. I can't imagine if you would change your opinion later on, then you'd be a waffler. And uh, yeah, so you probably want to stay consistent about that. 
I, I'm, anyway. I'm only establishing the first six minutes in the feels that I got. And you know how we talked about it's present day, 2018. It's all how about feels are. It's all about all about feels. That's all. That's all that matter at this point. Just the feels. Yeah. So I think the intro is fairly well done. Uh, the only issue I have with it is the stupidity of the helicopter. <laughs> yeah. A helicopter can actually hover. Instead, this helicopter pilot like zooms by the dog multiple times as if he's flying a jet of some kind. But for some reason, he's like flying zippity zappity. He could just hover right over the damn dog and rain down bullets. It would make a whole lot more sense, but they want to make it, you know, set it up so that the, the, the audience doesn't know what's happening. So they're just, you know, hoping that, he, oh, yes, actually shoot the dog or why is he shooting the dog? Because, you know, if he does riddle it with bullets, then you're, then you're tipped off right from the get-go that, you know, bullets would have no effect. And that would render a bunch of later scenes, you know, tensionless. Yeah, For correct. the most part. And, and when you mentioned, you know, the stupid things that he does, I thought you were going to get into the uh, releasing your grenade right next to the helicopter. Because that, no, that was pretty genius. <laughs> that was genius. <laughs> and it's just throwing it behind himself pretty much. And then, the, and then, yeah, then there's a box of grenades in the helicopter. It's it's all good. No, no, it's ridiculous. And then he just runs into camp shooting this, like, AR-15 and, like, shooting these other guys, making no attempt to communicate in any way. Well, he, he did yell a bunch of uh, something in, in Norwegian, but no one could understand him. Right. Now, I, I, I wonder if that would be necessarily the case, and I don't really have anything to base this on, but... Um, for pilots, they all have to know English because English is the established language for communicating with air traffic control, for landing and takeoff, et cetera, et cetera. I would just wonder if there would be a similar established standard for people who work in this type of environment in these... Uh, I mean, it's, it's clearly a government thing, right? The U.S. government had this established snow base, and then the Norwegian government did as well, and they were talking about um, uh, another larger base that I forget what the name of it was... Um, but anyway, I was just wondering if it would sort of be a prerequisite to be doing this type of quote unquote work to be able to have a standard communication language. I would think that it would behoove any number of these bases to say, you know, if you're if you're the Norwegian government and you've got this base in Antarctica, it's pretty much like international space and you need a common language to talk to other scientists in the area. So you'd probably have at least one person maybe more that are able to speak English, but eh, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's not a real movie. It didn't really happen. It's not a documentary. Uh, they can have a few caveats as far as, you know, not realistic things happening. Well, when like, you say it wasn't a real movie, I mean, there has been an iceberg that is rectangular shaped spotted in South America or uh, in Antarctica recently. And in the movie, they have this carved out slab of uh, iceberg from which the alien emerges. Was there an alien inside this rectangular iceberg? I don't know. You, get, you got me there. Well, but there was a stabbing in an Antarct Antarctic base uh, right around the same time as that. And there's a lot of stabbing okay. in this movie. And the thing shooting. confirmed. The thing, the thing confirmed. is confirmed. Run for your lives. If it gets to a uh, population, like the actual general population, we're all dead within, I forget what he said. 2,700 days or something? I think it's 2,700 hours, I think it was. Okay, yes. And I thought that the graphics, uh, their computer screen graphics, were were so top notch. I, yeah, I, for, I forget what movie we watched not too long ago, but it was like, I think it was Mission Impossible, where they just literally wrote like, uh, "Send jamming signal now." Yes, yeah. <laughs> hacking or hack, hack the thing, and like click. Okay, you did it. 
Yeah, I feel like this this movie had like the equivalent level of, of graphical information. But to be fair, I mean, this is to an audience in 1982. We grew up using computers and, and people younger than us, I mean, they, they came out of the womb with an iPhone or whatever. So to them, this would be like so crude, but it might seem fantastical to someone in 1982. You know, this is right after the Star Wars and, and E.T. and all of those things that had just come out in recent years prior. Yeah, and I will say that the uh, UFO at the beginning looks pretty good. I mean, it doesn't look terrible. Reminds me of the intro to Predator, which is another alien come to Earth story. Another worthy film of discussion. I've... Yeah. Yeah, so let me ask you this. This is probably related to the critics and, and their distaste for this film. And that is the concept of it's what you don't see that's scary and menacing because you leave it to the viewer to imagine the worst scariest possible thing that they don't visually see in in the movie because when you show them what your vision is then that's what they see they see your vision of it versus something that's lurking in the back of their heads that goes bump in the night and i i wonder if that was why some of them some of the critics were so um, negative on this because of all the work and effort that went into the showing of the gore and the violence and the um you know what the monsters look like and the dripping and the goo and and all the nastiness versus leaving it a bit to the imagination yeah this movie does kind of tread that line of horror and like grindhouse schlock splatterfest type thing because it really is the uh, the animatronics are over the top. I mean, there's like wild and wacky inflatable arm flailing tube man all over the place, just whipping and slapping and whatever. And there's goo splattering all over the place. Um, I will say that less is more. I prefer less is more in terms of a pure horror movie. I think, you know, like the first movie, Alien, where you see the creature like for maybe a few seconds total screen time. And probably the most horrifying scene is where they're crawling around in the air ducts and you see the creature only at the very end for like, you know, a half a second. And it's just terrifying. But it's all the lead up to that, um, which is why I think the psychological parts of this movie work the best when they are not sure who's the thing and they have to cooperate and negotiate and think up solutions and figure things out. It's very much a, a desert island type scenario where you don't have the you know the power of the state you don't have anybody coming to be the authority you have to negotiate you have to figure things out you have to you know cooperate with the people that you have and nothing more you've got a certain amount of supplies you got a certain number of people and you got a problem you got to deal with in very unfavorable conditions and how are you going to do that right yeah and you only have a very limited amount of information as well yeah limited amount of information limited amount of time it's all a lot of pressures are going on in this movie. And I think my favorite scene is probably the the blood test scene. It's uh, got a lot of good tension in it. And um, and those are just, yeah, those are that's, that's probably why I like this movie so much. Not so much because of the, I mean, the effects still kind of hold up, although they are, you know, fairly ridiculous. And they're not like scary, but it's just the whole psychological horror of it all. Like putting myself into the situation, like, a lot of this movie, for me, the good parts take place in my own mind. Like, in my mind, I'm expanding upon the universe. Like, what would I do in this situation? Okay. And filling in filling in the blanks. I don't think it's a perfect movie, but it, it really inspires my own imagination. And I think good movies do that. All right, fair enough. It kind of engages you into a bit of a choose-your-own-adventure with some, like, waypoints along the way. Yeah, like, I think, you know... If I were under attack by some unknown entity and we figured out that it could shapeshift and assume human form, then the first thing I would do would be like, okay, a buddy system or groups 
or we're all going to sleep in the same room. I don't care what anybody says, you know, I mean, I'd negotiate like that and I'd work out my logic and, you know, hopefully people would agree with me, but um, people don't do that in this movie. And it's kind of, you know, a little bit frustrating, but you know, if, if everybody did the right thing, then there wouldn't be a horror movie because, you know, people have to die. That's, that's, that's the rule in horror movies or else, you know. Yeah. Things have to kind of go wrong. Otherwise you don't have a story, right? Right. So um, in my view of this film, and, and this was just, you know, my first time seeing it, I thought that it seemed rather disjointed and like they were jumping around and maybe some scenes were missing. Like they edited some things together to where it didn't quite make sense. And so you sort of had to fill it in a little bit on your own. Because it's it felt to me like all of a sudden, Kurt Russell's character is like left out in the snow. And all of a sudden, he's at the door and they think that he's a monster as well. And there was like some of the, the connecting information just isn't there. And maybe that's intentional. Maybe that's supposed to throw you off and, and keep you at tension. But uh, it, to me, felt as if it wasn't quite edited completely, like perhaps they hadn't shot everything that they needed to complete their story. Because uh, I, I do know that they did record a lot or, you know, shoot a lot more scenes and a lot more stuff. And they had more things in the script that they ended up not being able to afford. Like when Nalls goes down into the um, generator area, they were going to shoot a death scene for him, but they ran out of money. And then the climactic, you know, creature... Um, creature confrontation was a muted version of what they were intending to do and they actually had to beg for that money to be able to shoot what they did so to me it felt like they had a vision and they didn't quite fully realize it due to time constraints financial constraints things of that nature and perhaps it works right because like you said you kind of fill in the the missing links in your own mind but for me in looking for okay what are they trying to tell me here i felt like there were some disconnects yeah I, i would agree with all the things you said i would even add that i think you know, much like the 2011 prequel that they made, the end is kind of like this boss fight, which is kind of unnecessary. Like in this movie, it's it's very brief. He just has like a stick of dynamite, essentially, and he throws it and blows him up, whatever. Like as soon as he shows up. And that's kind of similar to what happens in the 2011 movie. Um, so yeah, there are definitely issues. And I would agree with you, the, the pacing and the narrative struggles. Like, you know, one minute they're locking... Wilfred Brimley in the shack. And then it seems like pretty soon later, like maybe like two or three days later at the most, like at one point he mentions it's been 48 hours, something, 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 nobody trusts anybody. Then they go out there and Wilfred Brimley has dug this tunnel (laughs) and he's got all this equipment down there and he's built this spaceship. And it's like, when did he find time to do all that? Unless the being the thing makes you like super amazing at building and digging and all that stuff. Yeah, super fast and like, able to sneak around and get whole generators, like huge, you know, probably, I don't know, several ton generators that are to power the entire station. And these scavenges yeah. from the helicopters and things like that. Now, when I yeah. first saw Wilfred Brimley kind of go crazy in this, I thought it was because he realized that he was making a bargain. He was, he was laying down like that, um, you know, a philosopher's choice kind of a question. Like, okay, there's 12 of us here, whatever the number is. If this thing gets out, everyone on the planet dies. So I'm going to make the decision to make sure that we cannot leave this area. So I'm going to destroy the helicopters. I'm going to destroy all the hel- all the uh, communications equipment, all of the snowcats, everything, so that we are now isolated here. And I am choosing to sacrifice the rest of us. So it's a little bit of a, you know, it's a real moral question here but in his mind he realizes that if this thing gets out that it's going to assimilate the entire world and then you'll have five billion npcs instead of just 12 
right? And so yes. to me, he's well, sort of making of several hundred million. But yes, uh-huh. right. So yeah, if it gets out, it's going to take over the whole world in the you know twenty seven hundred hours or whatever the number is, uh, because these shape shifting things can mimic you know real humans. Which I have some questions about that, by the way, because it says right. That, yeah, me too. I mean, what what about the memories and that sort of thing? Couldn't you ask questions about anyway? Go ahead. Right, and I thought that was going to be like some of the giveaways, like oh well, he doesn't know. I okay, I'll back up for a second. When they said, oh, somebody's dirty drawers were in the garbage can, I thought, oh, that's because the the thing doesn't understand where laundry goes. And that was going to be like the giveaway, right? Like it doesn't know normal shit, you know? But uh, no, it's even different. It's, oh, when you transform into the thing, your clothes get torn up. Well, then how come there's very few torn up clothes? Like it seems like they turn into the thing and then they're wearing the same clothes they were wearing before they got turned into the thing. So that didn't really hold up for me. Right. And probably if they had more money, they might have been able to do a better job about that. But yeah, you're right about that. Um, in the 2011 remake, we learn which which directly leads into the beginning of this movie, by the way, it is a definitely it's a prequel that leads directly into. So it's, it's a remake. But yeah. Anyway, in that version, the thing can't create metal objects. It can't replicate metal objects. So people that had like earrings or rings on their fingers and stuff. So they'd be able to tell if you're the thing that way. Like you usually have a piercing here, blah, blah, blah. Oh, you don't. You're the thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like, uh, you know, those, um, you can turn invisible movies. Uh, and when they do it really poorly, your clothes also turn invisible, which doesn't make any sense. Right. Because if you're taking a you know some kind of a magic thing or whatever unless you have a magic cloak like in uh, harry potter where you can cover your entire body with this thing to become invisible it, it wouldn't work so you'd be walking around with clothes and no head or whatever so similar with the you know metal parts and earrings and whatever yeah so what were we talking about well in the pre-show i talked about how you mentioned the i'll take whatever for 500 alex suck it trebek and that was burt reynolds famously played by Norm MacDonald, calling himself Turd Ferguson, wearing a giant cowboy hat on Saturday Night Live. And that hat reminded me of Kurt Russell's hat in this movie. So Which I, also starred Kevin Bacon, so Six Degrees. Yeah, okay. Yeah, totally, you know, all about the separation. And also Kevin Bacon was in a, an Invisible movie, right? Invisibility movie? There's gotta be. I, sure well, that. he's been in like a million movies. Not literally everyone, don't quote me on that, but, you know, at least a few hundred. But uh, so Turd Ferguson, I saw the hat and I was like, that's a Turd Ferguson thing he's wearing the turd ferguson hat it looks ridiculous and and scene so we brought it all back around yeah bringing it back around but let's get into that philosophical question because even though it's revealed that oatmeal wilford brimley is not in fact making this philosopher's decision this uh trolley problem decision he's actually why is he not well because he's already the thing right at this point no i don't think so Okay. You, really? Do you think he's do you think he's the thing at that point, and then he's just sabotaging everything? Because the the scene previous to that was him doing his computer simulations and the the computer telling him that everybody would die if it escaped. So I thought he was making that moral choice, and then they lock him up in the shed, in which case he turns into the thing. Because the thing goes out to get him there. Right. Okay. That that was, that was that part was of the, the fuzziness it, for me. It, that was the way it happened in my mind. Okay. I thought that perhaps he had gone crazy and was the thing, and he was destroying stuff. And they lock him up because they're not sure about him, right? Because they think he might be the thing, and he is. And he's like then um, able to build the the spaceship out of the parts that he had been scavenging and from from the wreckage that he was creating. Well, if he was the thing, why is he destroying all the stuff? He wants to get out of there. He wants to escape to the places, so he wouldn't destroy the radio or the helicopters or the cats or anything. He's got like the that. master plan to make a spaceship. He's got the spaceship. That's right. He's making the spaceship out of the parts. 
Now, do you think that he was um, planning to leave the planet in the spaceship, uh, or was he just going to yeah, like who, fly to know. you know New York and be like, all right, I'm gonna you know take over the world in 2,700 hours? We don't really get to understand the motivations of the thing. We don't learn what it, if it has a plan, if it was coming here intentionally. I mean, the play, the ship in the very very beginning seemed to be fully functional to me, but then why did it just land or crash into the Arctic and then? crawl out and freeze to death or like you know into suspended animation or whatever so i was i was assuming that it was crash landing you know it's desperate and then it just wants to survive and so if that's the case then i would think that it would want to replicate and get to a populated area and spread and make more things well i think make more babies babies yeah i mean it's a very you know instinctual thing right so let's talk about wilford brimley's uh, moral decision then assuming that he was not the thing at the time that he was a human, but he's deciding for everybody else. He doesn't share the information with everybody else. He just decides for himself that he's going to make the decision for everyone else, regardless of their feelings, regardless of whether or not he's even wrong or not. He's not even sure if he's right or wrong. That computer program, I mean, he's talking about a computer from 1980, which like you can't even play like Pac-Man on it. So wait, are you right are you telling me computer models might be wrong? Like, oh, I don't know. Ones that don't even account for potential losses in home value in uh, 19 or in 2007, 2008, or climate change models. Okay, you got me on that one. Computer models are always right. They can't be <laughs> fallible. There's no way they could be not right because the people programming them are infallible also. So, well, they yeah, are experts. You got, me on, you got me on that. All right. Well, okay. back to the question, right? So, assuming yeah. that he believes the information is that if this thing gets out, the whole world's going to die. Well, and it seems to be right doesn't it? I mean, all it takes is one little scrap of blood from this thing to get on you and you could turn into the thing, right? Yeah, it seems highly contagious and aggressive. Like it's actively seeking out, uh, you know, it's, it's Borg style, right? It's like chasing you relentlessly to convert you, to assimilate you. And it's got some kind of intelligence, right? And we have questions about that. Does it actually have a memory? Does it assimilate? What does it take from you when it turns into you? What does it have of itself? We don't know. But there's some kind of driving intelligence to it because it is, you know, pretending to be a dog and sneaking in and, you know, then impersonating people and acting as them as if, you know, that are it's indiscernible to other people that know those people. Right. So not only can you can it, you know, look exactly like your friend, but it can act exactly like your friend. And that's a bit of a leap, Daniel. That's a leap to me. Um, but, you know, the, the guy who like really liked the dogs, I forget his name. Yeah, I don't know his name. Just Kennel Guy. Yeah, Kennel Guy. He seemed weird enough to where I was like, oh, he's probably he's probably one of those things. Turns out he wasn't. Spoiler, everyone. But that burned out uh, uh, stoner hippie dude, he was. And that was the, you know, the blood test thing that like every single cell from the thing reacted in a defensive way. And that's how he discovered that the blood was tainted or I don't even know know how to say this right but like the reaction revealed that that was from the thing yes but why didn't react to like getting poked and extracted if, if listen some kind of trauma is going to like do something to stop it stop poking holes in this plot daniel <laughs> this movie's perfect all right well you know it is a little bit confusing. no 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 the the fire is what hurts it. it it doesn't get hurt by being poked by bullets or or, or needles or anything or knives. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. All right. So it's impervious to everything but fire. But even then, even then, uh, they're not dead yet, right? Even the things that have been burned are still... They're still cellular activity, right? Right. Because they wheel the uh, the one, you know, covered up on a gurney. They're like, oh, this one's dead and burned and whatever. Uh, but it 
ends up killing um, one of the guys, not Windows, but the other dude. Right. I don't know the names. There's another guy. Yeah, it's unfortunate. We, we, we really should care about the individuals. I know who Kurt uh. Russell is. I know who Windows is. I know who Knowles is. And I know who um, Childs is, who's from Something About Mary, Beans Above the Frank guy. Well, you know, this movie does a pretty good job with its characters. I want to say does a pretty good job in terms of not making you hate them. But I don't think it does a, the greatest job of making each death feel impactful. You know, there's just too big of a cast, too short a time, not enough time to get to know each person, even though I would say there are some pretty good decent characters they're not the most you know endearing but they're 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 fairly realistic for the day i would want to say i mean they didn't seem like super big caricatures or whatever they seem like some dudes that were stuck in a research station in antarctica and weren't too happy about it and i don't know yeah yeah i'll, I'll agree with you there the um they all seemed you know very similar and so hard to distinguish from each other and in my reading of the background of this apparently the book it's based on had 35 characters and for that's the just too many screenplay they that's cut it down just, to 12 it was still too many that's just too many yeah i and mean there were yeah, some establishing um scenes that were like introducing the characters a little bit more and those got cut as well that's unfortunate because yeah in any kind of horror movie if you really want to get invested in the story you need to feel for the characters so that when they die you care but in this movie, it's more about, I don't know, as long as you have, for me, all I really identify with is like McCready and I care about him and I kind of, you know, he's kind of our first person perspective character for the most part. And so his suspicions are our suspicions and his ideas are our ideas and, you know, whatnots. So I think there's still good tension, even if you don't necessarily care if the doctor dies or if, you know, the hippie guy dies or the pilot guy dies. I mean, you know, you care, but not really. Right. I and felt bad when the dogs died. Like they're just hanging out, chilling in the kennel. And all of a sudden this thing gets locked in with them. That was sad. Oh, I felt bad on the opening when they're shooting at the dog. I'm like, what the hell is this? At least right. this guy's a terrible shot. Right. <laughs> and, and he's flying it like it's a jet, like you were saying earlier. Um, but yeah, Kurt Russell, you know, he, he's obviously the one with the gravitas in this, in this movie. He was well known as an actor, uh, leading into this. So he was clearly the star. Um, I think this is Wilford Brimley's like first biggish role, uh, before he was doing oatmeal commercials and, and like, um, AARP commercials. But, uh, you want to talk about something that's kind of interesting. The budget was, you know, re relatively small for a big budget film for a studio film, but huge for a horror movie. And there was a bit of um, income inequality at play here. <laughs> and Kurt Russell got paid eight times more than any other cast member. Uh, but wow. also Russell... The injustice. The social justice warrior inside me is super angry about that. You should be angry. Triggered. Of course, Triggered. a cis white male gets all the money, of course. <laughs> so the thing that's, that's interesting about that is that Kurt Russell had worked with Carpenter on Escape from New York and probably some other films prior to that so they had established a relationship and kurt russell was the last actor to um be brought on board so they were already going to shoot this thing they already had most of the other uh cast figured out they were considering like christopher walken and um clint eastwood and, and a lot of other people to be mccready and it ended up you know last minute kurt russell and i think it was because carpenter had established a a, a good relationship with him and knew that he would do well in the part but uh, it also brought a bigger price tag. And I'm sure Eastwood would have cost even more. I mean, Eastwood was at his prime as far as, you know, this is like right after the Dirty Harry days and, and all that stuff. Or he was in the middle right. of the Dirty Harry days, so it probably would have been even more. Right. But uh, yeah, I just found that interesting that he made $400,000 for the film, whereas anyone else, I believe, was around 50000 So gross inequality 
uh, socialists around the world should be just totally recoiling in horror from this horror movie called The Thing. Well, and then what did the women get paid? Nothing, of course. Yeah, the only the only like semblance of a woman in this film is the computer, the chess computer, <laughs> which is voiced by Carpenter's wife. And gets dumped on, alcohol dumped on her, gets her blown up by and, a man. And gets called a cheating bitch. Unbelievable. Unbelievable patriarchy in this movie. Can we talk about the uh, the final solution? I never thought you would uh, get through a whole episode without dog whistling. So yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so they get down to the end. There's just a couple people left. And Blair steals the generator out of the, the whole shop. So Because he's going to power a spaceship with it. He's going to power a spaceship. This big diesel generator. And so then in like, you know, six hours, it's going to be 110 below or whatever it is they said. They're all going to freeze to death and die. So they decide, well, we're going to burn the place down. And then that's it. Like, what does that accomplish? That doesn't accomplish anything. I mean, all it wanted to do was freeze to death or, you know, freeze and go into like a hibernation form and then get rescued and picked up by, you know, anybody who comes in and stumbles upon this place and discovers and what happened to this research outpost. Right. And then brought out into the world to be unleashed. Right. So how does burning the place down change that? All you have to do is walk outside, wait for it to burn and hang out. Yeah, because it was a dog, right? And it ran, what, a thousand miles or or whatever it was. Well, it was probably just a few hundred miles because it said it was an hour by helicopter to the Norwegian base. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly it's able to handle that much cold. So, I don't know. It it, it didn't seem like they had any good options, but burning the place down didn't seem to accomplish anything other than make for kind of a cool burn them down at all, destroy everything kind of an ending. Eh. All right. Well, so my take on this was I thought that this was the Blair plan just enacted a little bit later. Like Blair was doing it and they're like, oh, what's he doing? He's gone crazy. Let's lock him up. But then they go through the issue of, you know, the thing assimilating more of them, killing more of them. And they come to the realization as well. We need to kill the thing. And so what's the best way we can do? it? We can kill with fire. Let's blow up the building. We'll set these charges everywhere. We'll burn and blow up the thing and save humanity. So they were doing the Blair plan after they had originally thought the Blair plan was like guys going crazy. Well, and it only works. Okay, that would work if the thing is sitting inside the building and you burn it down around him and he catches on fire and dies. Okay, I agree with you. But you're not blowing up the whole place all at once. You're blowing it up in pieces and assuming that the thing has eyeballs to see and see that the place is starting to burn down, he could just like leave, just like go outside or go out into the little shack and go down into his little tunnel that he dug. Well, they blew that out. out in his spaceship. They blew, they blew up, up his spaceship? Yeah, it was like the first, the first oh, okay. charge. outside. You can just go outside and be a little thing popsicle until the thing burns down and everything burns down. I don't know. It just wasn't very satisfying for me. That's that's all. It's it's fine. I still like the movie. See, I thought I was the one poking holes in this thing, and here you are just flaying it open here. Um, <laughs> it's still good. It's still good. I I I do agree. The tension was was still good, and and there was a lot of mystery going on. The the psychological, like, how do you even know? How would you know it's not me? Like those types of questions were really good because they do think that it is. Um, what's it? McCready is that his name? Mac, Mac, Kurt Mac, Russell Terrier. Kurt Russell Terrier. And and so I have a question about that. When they found his torn up clothes, but he was not the thing, how did his torn up clothes get out there? Was the thing like plotting against him because he had assumed the mantle of leadership from Gary, who had lost a vote of confidence of the men because the blood got uh, opened and he was the only one with a key? Like, was there some kind of like plotting going on, some kind of like higher level thinking and advanced strategy going on? I assume that it was, yeah, like they were planting because 
he figured out that, you know, the underwear is, gets torn and whatnot. So they, the thing tried to frame McCready for some reason, but it seemed like kind of a, a plot element that didn't get fully developed. Like there's probably something on the cutting room floor that would help flesh that out a bit, but it's the way it goes. Okay. But still good enough. Good enough for, for being a cult classic, which this ended up being right now. Yeah. Enough to inspire a prequel. I, I think, and then they've made video games in this franchise not great video games but they made them so this is a this is a franchise that's pretty well loved yeah I, if I, if i recall in in my reading it came out right around the same time as blade runner and it was also panned by critics when it first came out but then achieved a cult-like following uh in later years as it became more and more appreciated for the effort that went into it and the uh sort of the nuance that was sort of lost on critics initially and I feel like that maybe was a cultural or generational difference. Like the critics were, you know, older, gen. older generation fighting the last war kind of a thing. Like they were looking at movies like the 70s were a heyday for film. And then they're seeing this stuff and it's like, oh, it's like all special effects, gore and goo and, you know, all this stuff like in your face trying to be extreme and like startle you. And they just but weren't the kids, into that. the kids embraced it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So so I think that's maybe how over time you can view things a little bit differently and and. My question to you specifically is in your viewing um, in the past, and I don't remember, like, you watched it again recently, right? Like, in preparation for this show. Did you Correct. view it differently now than you have seen it in the past whenever you first saw it and, and subsequent viewings? Has your perception of it changed? Yes. All right. Can you give me a little bit of contrast, like, from then to now? So I probably saw this originally, you know, 25 years ago and remembering it being pretty good and then watching it probably 10 years ago and going and not having super high expectations about it like i remembered it being pretty good but i'll watch it again it probably hasn't held up but i'll watch it and i'll and i watched it and i went this is surprisingly good like this is really good this holds up this is fun i'd watch this again this is great but that was also watching it without my critic eyeballs on and so watching it last night you know, where I'm thinking about the plot and I'm critically thinking about the plot and I'm looking at the acting and I'm, you know, really going through each thing and I'm going, okay, well, maybe it's not as great as I, you know, as my Mr. Fun eyeballs just thought it was good and fun, but I still think it's strong. I don't think it really holds up to like intense scrutiny, but as like a fun horror survival type movie, I think it's one of my favorites. I don't know if you're going to call it like one of the best but it's one of my favorites. Like I'll, I'll, I'll watch, I'd rather watch this than any like Resident Evil movie or I don't know, name me some other kind of survival horror type movies. There are some that exist. I mean, I guess I'd put Alien up there, like the first Alien as being probably top five survival horror. And then this up there also. And I can't think of any others, but I'm sure they exist. So not as good as originally, you know, recently watching it, but still good, still strong. All right. And, and more specifically to the moral questions, did you encounter those in the previous viewings or did they more stand out now with your worldview of, you know, the NAP? Only and... now. Only now. Yeah, I didn't I didn't think, wow, Wilford Brimley is really uh, screwing these people over, really not letting them have the choice to decide for themselves or at least come to some kind of consensus, consensus at least, or even trust them with the knowledge. I mean, what is he thinking? Like, he is, he's assuming that one of the people, at least one of the people is the thing. So if he tells everybody, and he would have to tell everybody. Wait, did you just assume I'm the thing? Yes. I've long assumed you were a thing of some kind. 
I didn't know what kind of thing, but you're some kind of thing. So what was he afraid of? Like he tells the whole group, yes, we can't, we got to destroy everything. And then the thing would have to go along with the group. I don't know. This doesn't make a whole lot of sense that he wouldn't at least tell everybody, but instead he just takes the moral decision himself and he destroys everything. Do you think that this is a, an NAP violation? Sure seems like one to me. Well, I think he is making a trade-off but in his own mind, you know, he's not considering the volition of the others, though he is also probably realizing that none of them are going to get out of there alive, which they all... For the greater good. And they all end up at, in that position anyway. Um, but there's no way to know that early on. But, um, you know, if, if they do sit down and he says, all right, in my scientific opinion, consulting Mr. Computer over here that has the graphics that are like... Bloop, my Atari 2600. Bloop. Yeah, it's like, oh, it's assimilation blobs. Uh, it says, you know, if, if this thing gets out, we're going to destroy the entire world. And so it's up to us to kill this thing. And by the way, we can't leave. Right. So do you think it's an NAP violation? I mean, that would clearly, I think, would be a, a better action than what he did. But we all we can do is decide whether what he did was immoral or not. So do you think it was immoral or not? Well, so this is almost a pro proportionality thing. Like, you know, those those other, you know, the trolley type questions, like if you had to kill one person to save 100 or whatever, you know, do you, which is the greater harm? How do you measure that? Because you are still committing a murder, right? But uh, you're not the moral actor in that situation. Right, because in the trolley problem, you're forced into the position. Right. Do you think that perhaps the thing is the trolley problem? So he's, he's the moral actor, and then he's not actually making a moral choice because he can't be? Right. Do you think that that... Because it feels like maybe that isn't exactly the position he's in, because he does have the... It seems like he would have the opportunity to consult and con converse with the others and say, hey, here's what I found. This is what I discovered. And you know, here's what I think we need to do. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, if he has the opportunity to speak to others, is he then... Does he have some sort of obligation to do that? I mean, I would say if he was all alone or, well, I, I like the idea that it, he's not a moral actor because the thing is the one that is the immoral actor. He is reacting to this aggression. So in a way, I want to absolve him. But yeah, he's making decisions for other people. He's violating other people's self-ownership. I mean, what you know, later on in the movie, we figure out that there's a test. But at the time, he doesn't know about any kind of test. So, you know, I, I think a moral way would be to maybe, you know, withhold judgment, discuss, you know, if they came up with a test and then they could decide who's human, who's not. And then the human ones could escape in like a snowcat or in a helicopter or whatever. I don't know. It seems like there are other options, you know, but Brimley just acted and he decided to be the, you know, take one for the team, I guess. I don't know. Now, let's assume that this plays out. You're filling in the blanks and you say, okay, they, they can establish who's the thing and who's not. And so they escape and they somehow trap the thing so it cannot escape, even though it can survive. And make spaceships. And make spaceships. So they sort of have to make sure they kill it, right? Because it's an existential threat to the entire planet. So it's sort of right. like if they just foisted leave, upon them, they have to do right, this. Right, right. If they just leave, they could make a spaceship and escape and get to like Los Angeles or whatever. Right. So they're, they're sort of in this for the long haul. They got to see this to the end. Right. Even though they can't be sure, not even close, that they killed it. Right. Because the cells just keep on... Keep on Even if keeping. they burned most of it, there's still some cells deep down inside. And you know, any findings that any research or, you know, recovery team comes to that place, they're going to find those crazy body shapes. They're going to go, what the hell is this? This is an amazing find of the century. We're bringing it back to a lab. And next thing you know, the thing's all, you know, comes out and it all happens anyway. So they've so, done a prequel. So they could do a sequel. They could. They absolutely could, I think. Because this leaves yeah. an unambiguous note. Like, 
it's Childs and Mc, McReady freezing yep. to death, sharing a drink, not sure if either one of them is the thing or both. Right. And whether they killed the thing if they're not. Yeah, they don't know anything. They know they're going to die soon, most likely. But you could easily write a sequel where both of them live, you know, like a helicopter comes flying in or whatever, and then they could have a whole recovery team. Or they could be corpses, and a recovery team could come in and pick up some thing parts and bring it back to the mainland and then, you know, have a whole more thing thing. Yeah, and then so, you've got, like, Planet of the Apes, like the reboot, or you've got uh, 28 Days Later, yep. or uh, that like yep. that monkey from Outbreak. You could There's so many possibilities in this. You could have it be where there's a whole world of things, and there's only a few humans left. You Or you could have you know, you could completely flip it. I mean, there's a lot of fun things you could do with this franchise. And um, yeah, I don't know. And, uh, and, I just think it's a cool idea. And bring back like Kurt, the idea Kurt of Russell the psychology. To do, his, do his cameo, you know? Oh yeah, he'd come back. Why not? They can de-age him like they did in Guardians of the Galaxy 2, make him look like he's 30 years old. Yeah, I think, whatever. I think this this has some legs to it. Let's uh, let's get this out there for the thing too to get made. Yeah, baby. I mean, I think it's got... John Carpenter's still around, right? Yeah, he just came back to do the um, the music for the recent Halloween movie. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, he he was famous for doing his own music. He did not do his own music in this one because he felt it was like too much going on with directing and all the rest of it in addition to doing the music. And uh, if I recall, and I don't, I don't know the name of the guy who did the effects on this, but he was working so much that he suffered from exhaustion and had to go to the hospital as a result of the amount of work he threw into this film. Well, it shows. I mean, I know in the um, the 2011 version, it's famous for having made all practical effects. And then for some reason, halfway through production, they decided, nah, scrap it. We're going to do everything CGI. And I think, you know, in 2011, the CGI and the budget they had didn't quite hold up. And the CGI effects look like, you know, kind of bad CGI effects. But I think today, if they were to make a thing too, they could go full CGI and have it look, you know, really good, like photorealistic good. If they had a decent budget, they could, if they had a hundred million bucks, they could they could make this shit out of a CGI thing to movie. And you know, I'd be on board. I'd watch the shit out of that movie. Now, do you think that you know how uh, uh, Blade Runner got redone twenty forty nine? You know, thirty years in the post the uh, prior movie, the original, uh, that it would be a similar like level of excitement. I mean, because Blade Runner twenty forty nine. We talked about this on our episode about it. It did okay in the box office, and people were excited about it, and it was a critical success. People enjoyed it, but it didn't have the same level of fandom that, say, a Star Wars does, where they can just crap out a Solo or crap out a TLJ. Right. Yeah, definitely not. There is not the level of fandom or expanded universe in the thing. It's not like there's comic books, and there are comic books. They're good comic books. There are good thing comic books. If anybody's interested, go and check it out. I think Dark Horse made them. Maybe not Dark Horse, but if somebody made them and they're good back in the day, like in the 80s and 90s. Um, what the fuck was I talking about? <laughs> what were you just saying? Uh, it, it, with the fandom, the fan base. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, being the fan, rabid, yeah, but uh, not, not large. Right. So there are good comic books, um, but that's about it as far as the expanded universe is. Um, the 2011 movie, as I recall, was kind of a flop and they were expecting it to do well. Because, you know, the nostalgia and whatever for the original movie, but not original, but you know what I mean? But yeah, there doesn't exist. I mean, there just isn't, there just isn't the kind of, you know, there aren't books. I mean, there are video games and there are comic books, but it just doesn't, it's just not a big enough universe. But for Robert, it would be like pretty choice 
for somebody to pick that up and be like, all right, we're going to throw 50 to 100 million at this thing, get Kurt Russell to a cameo. We're going to, you know, really just blow this thing out, get the, get the thing out into the world, into the real population centers and see what yeah, happens. I mean, I'm not the hugest fan of the re rebooted Planet of the Apes. I think there's some issues with those, but I think that you cannot fault them for the quality in terms of the look of the movies. I think, I mean, those look like, you know, it looks like a damn orangutan. I mean, that just looks like it. I mean, you cannot say that those do not look like apes. So if you were to take that kind of level of quality and care to a Thing remake, Thing 2 movie, and, you know, change the setting to like Argentina and to a, like a, or a CDC type facility where they're, you know, checking the things out and then it spreads onto a person and then they're still, you would have it, you know, the same level of, then there's a, you know, contamination lockdown and, you know, there'd be some, you know, that kind of tension and you don't know who's infected and who isn't. And then you'd have the threat from the outside of what they're going to do. And, and the threat, know, there's all... The threat of the government response, right? The government, the government response coming in and either firebombing the whole place or sending soldiers in or whatever. There's all kinds of issues that go on with that. So and I'm sure they have security protocols and contamination protocols and whatnot. I'm sure, but um, uh, there's just a lot of fun you could have. I think. Yeah. See, I'm filling in the blanks already in the new story. Yeah. Yeah, baby. I mean, you got the threat. Yeah, you got the threat of soldiers coming in. So then the scientists inside got to figure things out. All kinds of stuff. It could be uh, a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Maybe I should write it. I don't know. That would be quite ambitious. Well, I, yeah, go ahead. Well, I have a few more notes and then and then we should wind this one down. We've been going uh, for almost the full show length here. But uh, we talked about the you know SJW kind of action a little bit and the uh, pay inequality between Russell and the rest of the characters, which was probably not a big deal at the time and, and really shouldn't be a big deal. But I have a note from the rehearsal for Nalls, um, the, uh, the second black guy, not the child's guy, but the other one. Uh, uh -huh. Some famous comedian from the 70s also auditioned for the part and did the read and then gave a lengthy speech about the character being a stereotype. And then the, we, Richard Pryor? No, it's some other guy that I, I've never heard of. Uh, but uh, he, the, the meeting ended uh, immediately after the uh, end of his screed against the stereotype of the Nulls character. You know, he was the roller skating guy listening to Stevie Wonder, feeling superstitious. I think he was the cook in this, uh, in this movie. Yeah, he was. Uh, did you feel like he was super stereotypy? I don't know. In terms of 80s movies, I thought it was pretty tame. I think there's far worse examples of stereotyping going on. No, but I, I guess I, you could say there's a little bit, I suppose. Well, it's a character. I mean, how anyone can view anything and go, that's a stereotype. Well, you're, you're representing a character who's supposed to be representative of X or Y. You know, this is why you've cast them, right, to play this part, because they fit that role. So you, anyone could be upset about that for any particular reason, it's like a microaggression type level of, of being upset. And this is back in the early 80s. I mean, this is kind of bizarre for someone to get upset about this, especially after like black exploitation films had been uh, kind of a big deal in the 70s. And I mean, you go back and watch those now, you're like, holy crap, they actually made this stuff. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. You know, like Shaft. Well, and then there's black exploitation movies like Black Dynamite that are all tongue in cheek and made by black people. And they're awesome. Right. And that's even a more recent one that was what, six, seven years ago, something like that? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and then um, Undercover Brother, which, as cheesy and terrible as that is, uh, I enjoy it. With White She-Devil and Conspiracy Brother and... Right, right. No, no, it's fun. It's kind of like an Austin Powers send-up. Right, but like with, you know, Chappelle in it and, and uh, is it Eddie Griffin? He's the main main guy, yep. Undercover Brother. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. So, anyway, I thought that was interesting. And then... Uh, Snoop Dogg's in that, isn't it? Yeah, probably. Yeah, uh, probably, yeah. And then there was one other note that I had, and this is related to the, the budget that they were trying to save money. 
And they did something that uh, is actually rather brilliant and not what they had intended to do. And they only did so because they had to economize. They had to use scarce resources that they had available to them to the best purposes. They were originally going to build the Norwegian camp and burn it to shoot in that area for the Norwegian, you know, like expedition scene, like what happened over there. That was in the budget to do that. And then the budget got cut down. So what they ended up doing is because they blew up the American camp at the end of the movie, they blew it up and then used that same set as the Norwegian camp. It's a good idea. I don't know why they wouldn't have done that anyway. That, that seems like a perfectly logical thing to do. You, as a, you know, when they're filming movies, they can shoot any scene at any time, completely out of sequence, in sequence, doesn't matter. So yeah, if you got a wrecked set at some point, might as well use it as the wrecked set for some other thing. So yeah. Yeah, just change change some of the flags around or whatever, and, and then all of a sudden you got the uh, you know the second set that you were looking for. But yeah, that was just interesting that that they they had to make a decision like that because they had to solve a problem, you know. And and had they just had the money, they might have just built another set. And so it's it's a marginal uh, utility, you know, relative uh, value scale here, subjective utility. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I know. I know you're trying to talk about some economic things, and you're trying to use words. So I appreciate that. I'm throwing a word salad. Uh, Word salad at you right now. Why don't you uh, go ahead and launch into your final summary interview, Daniel? I want to hear what you thought of this bad boy. All right, I will launch into the final summary review here. Uh, And this show is part of the Launchpad Media, by the way. I I meant to mention this early in the show, but the Launchpad Media is a company or media consortium that has multiple shows. We are one of them. We are the Monday show, The Last Nighters. And uh, Sounds Like Liberty is one that we gave a shout out for um, the other day or the uh, recent show. Uh, they're really good. They talk about music uh, with libertarians, people in the uh, liberty movement. Uh, there's also Sherry Voluntary and Alan Mosley. They do a show called Postcards from Somalia. There's also a show by Alex Merced called Nice Guys Finish Last, or Nice Guys Finish Free. That's the name of it. And then, of course, Johnny Rocket uh, with uh, Raylene Lightheart doing Blast Off. So the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction, that's what we're a part of. And you can find that at www launchpadmedia.com. Check it out. And with that, I'm launching into my final summary and review. Uh, I had this really played up in my head because you had told me how amazing this movie was. And so I went into it with high expectations. And I started watching it with seeing uh, similarities to The Shining, which is one of my favorite movies. And I was like, all right, we're, we're getting into this. This is going to be great. You know, there's a lot of tension and, and um uh, great cinematography and music that's building up all of you know the foreboding and, and what's going to happen and that was all great but then you start getting into you know your your critical analysis view and you're like okay how does this line up with that wait did they did they cut like five minutes here and just didn't tell us and I, I noticed that three or four times and my wife and I were watching this and we're like wait what 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 the hell just happened how why are they over here wait where did he come from what's going on and there was enough of that to throw it throw me off my game in watching this. Not to say I didn't enjoy it. I still did. And I do really enjoy the moral questions that were brought up and discussed during our episode here. But as a movie, I don't see why people are so um, excited about it. I don't know. I'm just... the moviness of it is not so great. The story is not so great. There's there's bits and pieces here that are that are awesome, and like we discussed, there's potential for it to take off from there because it does have a cult following. You could take this uh, into the present day and do something really special with it, and I think that would be really cool. So I'm gonna go with a 7.0 on this, which I feel a little bit bad about. I thought it was gonna be better, 
So that's that's where I'm going to leave it with you, Robert. That's not any kind of score that makes me upset at all. I think that's a perfectly favorable, good quality score. I'm going to go a little bit higher than you, but not a whole lot higher. So in my final summary and review for y'all, I grew up watching horror movies, but I wouldn't say that horror is my favorite genre. And, you know, you can make your own judgments about whether it's good to have someone grow up watching horror movies or not, but that's what I did. Uh, I think I watched this one later on, like I was a bit older when I watched this, but um, so I, I don't know if there is like, you know, my favorite horror movie of all time, if it even gets like an eight. I don't even know if that's the case. And I probably haven't even seen the best horror movie of all time. But in general, when a movie's trying to do a thing like scare you, it probably sacrifices, you know, like the greatest of stories, you know, probably doesn't have all the romance or I don't know, the cohesion. Like usually the big trope of horror movies is that characters make dumb decisions in order for things to go bad. So it has to be, you know, fairly logical. Like the characters need to act realistically or else you will just detach. Like, you know, in a normal horror movie, when you are afraid that there is a thing out there, there's a guy murderer on the loose and he's out running around with a knife and he's like in the neighborhood and you're just like, hey, let's go outside and have sex on the front lawn. Who cares? What's up? That's what we're going to do. And that's what things happen nobody would make that decision so you're like yeah screw it i hope you die as the audience you're just like i don't care about you you're dumb you need to die and i'm gonna cheer your death you know hopefully your characters and your horror movies are making good decisions or at least understandable decisions and i think in this movie it mostly succeeds because you're dealing with a lot of unknowns and you're dealing with a lot of suspicions and paranoia and you're in this you know bottle and you don't know who to trust. You don't know who's who. You don't know if you're talking, giving away information to the thing or your friend. You don't know if your friend Daniel is the thing and has been the thing all along and just wants to reproduce. And his babies are little things who get you sick when you go over to their house and give you the plague. And maybe you're infected and now you're a thing too and you don't even know it. You know, there's all kinds of unknowns that are terrifying. And that's why you resolve to never go back there again. Those little plague monsters. Anyway, anyway, so what was I, what was I talking about? I kind of cut off on never mind um so yeah your characters need to act uh you know realistically and i think they do in this movie so you know not i i agree with everything daniel said there there are you know narrative jumps and leaps and it feels like there's you know film left on the cutting room floor where it could have been you know if they had remade it with a more full narrative with a real budget it could be a really a great thing but as it is it leaves a little bit to be desired but i think the core of the idea and the situation is really really strong um you know a, a group of people that have to figure it out on their own they don't have you know they can't just call somebody and have them come in and fix everything for them so you really see what a, a character is made of when there's a lot of pressure applied and they have to respond and uh it's it's a that that's the kind of story that i really really enjoy so the acting was good the cinematography is fine the you know music was fun Plus, it's got that nostalgia value. So I'm going to give this movie a 7.4. I, I recommend you see it if you haven't seen it. Uh, don't go in thinking it's going to be like a modern thing, though. You know, you have to imagine, you know, remember what it is for the time that it was made. And I, and I don't think anybody's going to put John Carpenter down in like the director's Hall of Fame, maybe in the horror movies Hall of Fame, but probably not in like the director's movie Hall of Fame. Not to say he's not great, but... I just don't think he's on the level of some of the top tier directors of all time. I think he is good at doing a certain thing, but he's not like an auteur that is really going to be like pushing genres forward. And maybe he did for his day, but I don't know. I just don't think he's like advancing film, you know. Anyway, I'm not here to shit on John Carpenter. I think he did great. He had a fantastic career. 
Yeah, had a boy. Anyway, 7.4 for me. Go see it if you haven't seen it. And uh, that's my review. So suck it. All right. Well, suck it indeed. Uh, I want to throw just a few more things out at everyone before we wind this one down and, and talk about our next upcoming episode. Uh, it's been mentioned by one of our Patreon supporters who is able to watch the live stream. Uh, she's Anarchist Mom, and she's going to be launching a podcast very, very soon. And I think we might be doing a show with her or perhaps a series of shows on the Lord of the Rings, if you're cool with that, Robert. Um, and that will be, you know, probably... What are these movies? I've never heard of them. They, I, I, We'll have to look them up. I don't know if they're any good. I'm not sure what the source material is or anything like that. But she's a big fan, and it would be a nice way to uh, kick off her podcasting career uh, for the Anarchist Mom podcast. So I think that would be a lot of fun. So we should be looking to book that in the next couple of weeks here if we can. Um, but she mentions on the uh, live stream that the thing is paid reverence to in the X-Files in uh, an episode where they're down in uh, Antarctica. And she says it's called Ice Season 1, Episode 8. I'm going to have to check that out. I would thank you for that. Yeah, and I also I... think in the X-Files movie, don't they also discover uh, a, a flying saucer under the ice? Yeah, that sounds... I'm sure they did many times. I, I couldn't <laughs> tell you. The truth sure. is out there somewhere. <laughs> There's always a bunch of flying saucers all over those episodes. All right. Well, thank you for that, Anarchist Mom. We, we do look forward to having you on the show. We will get that booked with you. And if anyone else is interested in supporting what we do here and, and being able to watch the live stream or even the behind the scenes or getting early access, anything like that, uh, go to lastnighters.com slash Patreon and you can find out all the different reward levels. And we would really appreciate it. It's a good motivator to, to let us know that we're doing something that people enjoy and uh, gets, gets our juices flowing. Right, Robert? Maximum juice. Maximum, maximum usage. All right, so the next episode uh, is going to be coming out on November the 5th, which if you look at certain styles of calendar, you will notice that is Guy Fawkes Day. And so the movie that is best and most appropriate for a date such as this is V is for Vendetta. So that will be the next episode up for bid on the podcast. That'll be episode 44 of The Last Nighters. And this was episode 43 on The Thing. Check it out at lastnighters.com slash 43. And with that, I shall say goodnight from last night. Peace out, everybody. All right, and back to the actual Anarchy audience for a few more minutes. I do have another shout-out that I wanted to mention, and that is to our friends over at Reel on Reels, and that's R-E-A-L on R-E-E-L-S. And they are a new podcast as well, and they just did an episode on Jim Carrey's The Cable Guy. It's their fifth episode. I listened to it, I think, yesterday, and it is really well done. I've listened to all of their episodes. Uh, they're they're good guys. Um Jeremiah is one of the hosts, and he was our guest on episode uh, that we did last year for Father's Day, uh, Finding Nemo. So you can find his um, proto appearance, you know, like his initial podcast appearance on our on our episode on Finding Nemo. Yeah, you get the first appearance. It's a collector's edition. Check it out. Yeah, before he was famous, you know, before he was amazing and famous. So Reel on Reels, um, I don't think they have the uh, the website domain, but they do have a Facebook presence. So just look up Reel on Reels on Facebook or also at anchor.fm Reel on Reels. Uh, check it out. Super good stuff. They're interesting guys. His coast is also called Rob, by the way. Sweet. We can have a Rob sexy off. It's a, it's a it. contagious. 
the the Robism is like everyone's the thing. So I have this question: <laughs> Was the thing a single enemy entity, or was it potential that you know multiple people, multiple things, mo- multiple like units? You know, like you could be the thing, and this guy could be the thing, and the dog could also be the thing. Like once you're infected, are you a thing, and there's multiple things, or is it one one hive mind? Yeah, one hive mind, Borg style. You know, like you're it can infect multiple, but you're all like one organism, even though you act. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm a little confused on how that all works. I think that's open to interpretation. I think that that has not been established yet. I, I'm, I'm, I'm also, you know, it's also unclear, you know, to what level does the intelligence go down? Like, does every individual drop of blood, does every cell? I mean, what, I mean, if, if the blood reacts to fight off whatever, like how much intelligence is in that little Petri dish? Is it the entire consciousness? Is it, it's its own consciousness or is it like the hive part of the hive mind? You don't know. We don't know. I don't think the original author had an idea. I think he just was making a cool monster. Well, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Cause I, yeah, I think if you get down to the, like the, the, the biochemical and philosophical like concepts of what these things are, maybe it doesn't hold up. But uh, it's yeah. still, you know, menacing and scary, and it's not meant to be like, hey, this is all going to make perfect sense. No, it's meant to, like, jar you and freak you out a little bit, and I think it does a fine job of doing that. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, if you think about zombies, they don't make any sense. Like, how does the brain still control the body? How, what, you know, the blood, is the blood still pumping to the cells? How, what's animating the flesh? It doesn't make any sense. So, you know, if you, you and then, you know... Yeah, any 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 horror movie monster is is not going to really hold up to much scrutiny. I don't think. I mean, I think Jason died like ten times, and came back to life. Same with Michael Myers on the moon and in hell. And yeah, you know, none of it makes any sense. I think they're just trying to make some money, <laughs> good on them. <laughs> Got to make that paper. Yeah, baby. Well, we we actually did an episode on Night of the Living Dead, which was the original zombie film, and we made some interesting points in that one. I forget the uh, episode number, maybe forty one. And that was our Halloween episode last year. This is our Halloween episode this year, episode 100 here on The Thing. Uh, but the whole reason that the entire zombie genre even is a thing, it, it feels weird to say The Thing when we're talking about The Thing, but I'm not actually referring to The Thing when I'm saying The Thing about The Night of the Living Dead, is that because of a copyright mistake that zombies became a... Th- See, I can't even like... Became like famous or like usable or proliferated. And That's right. Became a whole genre and it exploded in uh, content and and merchandise and TV shows and movies and everything and and that's an amazing uh, amazing thing and a unique aspect of of that particular movie. So do check out that episode. It's pretty good. Yeah, you wouldn't have Game of Thrones, Walking Dead, and it, essentially because of the copyright, there would be you know um, what's his name. Romero. George Romero. George Romero would have the copyright on, you know, a slow-moving, shambling human that eats brains. Or even, you know, a slow-moving, shambling kind of zombie more, you know, monster creature thing. I, I think that there, that in general would be his. And then he could just turn around and, you know, stew anybody that even has something similar to it that would just destroy creativity. So, yay for mistakes. Right. And, and boo copyright law. Boo IP, forced negative servitude. Well, anything else that you want to share with our audience? Um, you know, are we making episode 100 special in any way? Or are we just saying, hey, you know what? We're just showing up with our lunch pail. We're doing the thing. And we're going to just come back to you next week with VS for Vendetta as 101. You know, every time I get to talk to you, Daniel, it's a special occasion for me. You know, you're just really special in my heart. So 
you know, I want to thank you. I want to thank all our viewers and our listeners. And thanks for sticking with us. If you actually listen to all 100, that's like incredible. I don't expect anybody to have done that. They're but... leveling up to triple digits right now. <laughs> yeah. But uh, thanks for sticking with us. And just know that uh, maybe we'll have 200. You think we'll make it? I don't know. Stick around and find out. Tune in next week and see if we make it to 101. <laughs> v is for Vendetta. So this has been the Actual Anarchy Podcast. Thank you guys very much. Uh, if you want to support us, you got the Patreon links and all the other stuff. Uh, we are uh, the purveyors of actualanarchy.com, and the show notes and more can be found at slash 100 on this one. Uh, thank you guys again, and peace out, everyone. We're going to get into some Kathleen Turner Overdrive right after this. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do